is October 25th, 2018. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Uh, our guest today is Joshua Dudman. Hi, Josh. Hello. Um, he is senior group leader at HHMI's Genalia Research Campus. His research combines computation, physiology, optical circuit dissection, some really cool genetic tools, uh, and also output behavior to define how the functional architecture of basal ganglia serves purposive action. Around the room, we've got kind of a big group. Um, let's start with, everybody will introduce themselves today. You are? Hello, my name is Denard Simmons. He's a postdoc in Wilson's lab. Todd Troyer. Josh Dudman. <laughs> Charlie Lawson. Matt Wannett. Juan Morales. And Juan, you're a graduate student in Dr. Charlie's lab. Okay, great. To start here, so Josh, you championed an, uh, an experimentally derived model for basal ganglia function that poses that the basal ganglia act to control the gain of movement kinematics to shape performance based on prior experience. Can you introduce us to this idea better than I just did, specifically in terms of how it may depart from classical action selection models that seem to frame basal ganglia pathways in terms of determining more probability of movements, the way I understand it, rather than kinematics. So yeah, take sure. it away. Uh, for many of us, I think our interest in basal ganglia comes from the observation of Parkinson's disease patients. Uh, Parkinson's disease is characterized by degeneration of one cell type within the basal ganglia. And clinically, it has a few cardinal symptoms associated with it. One of those cardinal symptoms is called bradykinesia, which is a slowness of movement um, there have been a lot of nice experiments over the years that have demonstrated that people have the capacity, Parkinsonian patients have the capacity to move at a normal speed and amplitude. They just seem to have this strong bias towards making small amplitude and slower movement under sort of broadly defined lots of different voluntary and intentional actions that they make. And so, um, you know, my interest really grew out of that sort of perspective uh, from the clinical perspective of why one particular cardinal symptom, this bradykinetic symptom, why that was so pronounced. And we so often found that kind of historically in the literature and experimental settings as well, that uh, kind of whatever we do to perturb basal ganglia function would often produce these sort of changes in the kinematics, sort of the speed, amplitude, things like this about how uh, people or animals execute their movements. And to me, that, that felt like that pointed at kind of a deep riddle, sort of what was it about the circuit, its organization, the computations, how it fits in sort of overall to brain circuits that made it so critical for regulating the speed of movement. Um, and through a variety of experiments we've done, sort of inspired by thinking about the evolution of the basal ganglia, uh, as well as other perspectives, it looks like one way you can think about it is that the basal ganglia kind of sits in parallel to motor pathways that ultimately sort of determine the details of our movement. Uh, and basal ganglia seems to sit there in parallel to that and be capable of altering some properties, but not all properties of our movements. And the speed and amplitude is one of the properties that basal ganglia seems to play a key role in regulating. Um, and one way, if you want to sort of connect that back to sort of motivated behavior, as you described before, we're sort of constantly, albeit implicitly, altering the speed and amplitude of our movements based on our recent experience. 
So uh, you can walk to lunch when you're fully sated and not that hungry, and you'll often sort of walk slower if you're really hungry. You may not be thinking about it exactly, but you're very likely to be walking more quickly towards lunch. Or if you're reaching out to grab a highly desired object or valuable object, you tend to reach faster or more abruptly for that object than you do for something that you're less interested in. And sort of a key part of the brain is sort of regulating those implicit aspects of behavior and adapting them to our experience. And we think there's lots of evidence that the basal ganglia is a particularly critical component to that implicit adaptation of our movements um, to our history and to our experiences that helps sort of shape the richness and flexibility of voluntary behavior. In that sort of, the way you sort of describe it, it almost makes it, there's a sort of inherent contradiction where you're saying that it's functioning uh, to modulate the gain in, in essence is sort of what you're saying of uh, behavior. But at the same point, when the system totally is messed up in sort of Parkinson's disease, it sort of highlights it's playing maybe a more important role than just the sort of gain filter. And so in some ways, like, you need it. It, it, it's required. And I'm just wondering sort of how you sort of resolve that I, idea of, you know, if it is just sort of a gain modulator, then you could go without the basal ganglia and you should be able to behave normally, but just albeit poorly. Yeah, I and, agree. But that, actually that touches on a thing, you know, a famous well, remedy to some extent for PD is a pallidotomy. It is to take the basal ganglia offline. Um, which I think is a is an always been an intriguing result. Why sort of taking it offline uh, actually remedies the symptoms of PD? To my mind, what that points to is the fact that in Parkinson's disease, it's not that the basal ganglia is offline. It's much worse, actually. It's much more like an aberrant gain of function. It's like uh, actively turning down the volume or reducing the gain in a way that what I still think is mysterious is why the rest of the brain can't compensate for that effectively. But um, I think the perniciousness and sort of uh, profundity of the deficits in Parkinson's disease really provide evidence that the brain has a hard time compensating for that sort of aberrant gain of function aspect of basal ganglia uh, pathology. I mean, so that that's our that would be the way that I, I totally agree with your point, and that I think is from our perspective how one reconciles that point is that it's a kind of it's actively impairing movement in PD, not uh, being taken offline. Uh, so, you know, where did the where did the action selection come from? Why did anybody ever think? I, you know, I'm fascinated by this question, and I um, this is before I was born, but uh, I've tried to infer this. So, I don't. Neil Bushwald was running a a lab at UCLA and was doing really some of the first experiments um, to record from operantly trained rabbits and cats and recording from the basal ganglia. Um, and I think if you look at his early work, sort of pre-1974, they sort of viewed basal ganglia as a component of motor control pathways that I think many of us view as. And as far as I can find, I don't know if it was a meeting he went to or, you know, how these things happen, but all of a sudden in this 1974 paper, I think it's 1974, they sort of decide, they say it right at the abstract in the introduction, we think basal ganglia is involved in selecting actions, so we're going to go check for that in our recordings about whether it's involved in selecting actions. That's one of the first 
things I can find in the literature. But what I find informative is that if you read that paper, the conclusion is that they never found basal ganglia to be active before, say, motor cortex was active. They did find basal ganglia neurons active before movement initiated, but motor cortex is also active before movements are initiated. And they still sort of concluded it played some role in selection or initiation, but the paper didn't really, in my opinion, provide very strong evidence for the fact that it played some role in selection or initiation per se, as opposed to providing quite a bit of evidence, I think, that it played a role in regulating how we perform the action. And the thing that's been true from Bouchard's work, and I would say every other paper, okay, whatever, in many, many results uh, in diverse species since then, is that you tend to see more neurons active in the basal ganglia during the execution of movements than prior to the execution at a time when selection, you know, so if we think of selecting something and then doing it, most basal ganglia neurons are active during the execution of the movement. And that was something that, for example, Faye Horak and Marjorie Anderson championed back in 84, 83, when they were doing their experiments recording in the output nuclei, and they found, hey, basically all of the activity is during the movement of the limb, not prior to the initiation of the movement of the limb. Uh, and they concluded it was really involved in execution. The effects of basal ganglia that Faye found only occurred once you could already start to see muscle contraction. That's her kind of explicit conclusion to that series of studies. Um, so I think the selection idea has been very attractive, but I can't totally figure out kind of how it started getting uh, injected into the problem, with one exception, which is that PD patients or animals with dopamine depletion, they tend to have less, they, they make less movements. Uh, and so that's really the, the one really profound piece of data that has to be reconciled with the sort of model that I'm describing, which is why you're less likely to initiate a movement uh, in PD. So, so how about rigidity? I think um, I, don't, I don't know the answer to the question that I asked. So I don't actually know how action selection got, got started. But if you think about the things that people were interested in in Parkinson's disease, one of the key things is rigidity, which seems to have to do with co-contraction, as if the arm doesn't know whether it wants to relax or, or flex or extend. Right. And so there, there were some early ideas that even the choice of whether to flex or extend was somehow embedded in basal ganglia function because of rigidity. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, rigidity was a really perplexing problem, right? And then, um, so it was thought potentially at the time uh, that yeah, rigidity was some sort of peripheral deficit, different patterns of EMG of the muscles. Um, and then at least my reading of the literature, again, this is well before I was involved in this, but like Jose Obiso and Cliff Marsden, when they looked at that, they found normal EMG signals. And the one thing that Obiso and Marsden found correlated with rigidity in terms of, you know, if you had a patient with more severe rigidity or less severe, because there's sort of these two general classes of PD patients, those that are very high in rigidity and tremor and those that are more bradykinetic and akinetic. Um, when Marsden and Obiso looked at it, the one thing that correlated was the so-called long latency stretch reflex. 
So uh, when we start to make movements, um, there's a number of reflexes. Some of them are peripherally, just go through the spinal cord and back to the muscle. But that's the so-called short latency reflex. And the long latency reflex is thought to be the one that goes all the way back up through motor cortex, back down to the spinal cord and back to the muscle. And that's the long latency reflex that tends to correlate and predict the extent of rigidity. Um, so we're really intrigued by... Like more of it? Yeah, yeah. so if... Uh, you can't really... Alt um, you have a more... Let's see, you have a less pronounced long latency stretch reflex. I think that was the sign of the result. Um, it's tricky. It, it's an inferred property. It has to do with uh, when you're making the movement of the limb and it's perturbed. It has to do with how many tens of milliseconds it takes before you see corrections in the EMG. 60 milliseconds, I think, being the threshold to the long latency stretch reflex. Um, yeah, and, and I take that to be uh, obviously some evidence that there's a central cause to rigidity and it has to do with, again, potentially something about during the initiation of movement or once the limb starts to be perturbed, uh, the compensatory response. So I don't know. I mean, we don't really have an answer to rigidity uh, other than the fact that I feel like it's an intriguing point uh, that it involves a transcortical and presumably thus transbasal ganglia effect on feedback from the periphery back down to the musculature. It's Obviously, I kind of like the idea that some gain there is one way to explain Rigidity, like altered gain on your long latency stretch reflex, which potentially basal ganglia could influence. Um, we like that idea. We have an issue that in our PD models in mice, to the best that we can tell, we don't have rigidity. So we've basically been unable to work on it, but I am curious to work on it. Is it is rigidity resolved by pallidotomy typically? Is it? Trimmer and rigidity, I think, are less well-treated with pallidotomy I don't, uh, and some kind of average sense, but I don't, I don't think that's an absolutely firm thing. Often they're less responsive to L-DOPA, right? Yes. Yeah. So going to a different neurodegenerative disorder, and this is well outside anything I know, but Huntington's disease. How do, does, anyways, the behaviors you see in Huntington's disease, can your model sort of map on well to what you observe there, especially if we're talking about rigidity. <laughs> um, how does that sort of map on? Yeah. So, okay, so Huntington's disease is a, also a disease characterized by degeneration of the basal ganglia. But in this case, I don't know if this is too complicated, but it's, it's a loss of another neuron type within basal ganglia, not dopamine neurons like in PD. But um, basically, the downstream target neurons of dopamine. The it's medium, okay to say neurons. striatal spiny neurons. Okay, striatal so. spiny neurons. <laughs> uh, and also, probably seems to have some pathology in the cortical projections to the spiny neurons, as far as we can tell, I would say, as a field. Um, right, so how does. Uh, one, I think one has to characterize what the behavioral deficits are in Huntington's disease. So, um, like, Sort of canonically, of course, it's Huntington's chorea, chorea for the sort of dance-like exuberant extra movements that occur. Um, I don't, I'm not as well versed in this field, but, you know, we, we have been really interested in looking for kind of in the, in motor control labs when people do kind of detailed psychophysics or motor control experiments on patients, trying to use those as like the best quantified and most precise measurements of deficits of disease. So, uh, one paper from Maurice Smith 
and Reza Shadmir that I found very interesting was they had Huntington patients doing kind of reaching out to targets in the task. And what they found is that patients were characterized by excess jerk, which is a, you know, sort of the technical term for the uh, second derivative of the velocity profile. It's like this exuberant acceleration when you're trying to compensate for errors because as you reach to a target, right, you have to have used constant feedback and adjust to that. That's intriguing to us because I think that bears a lot of similarity to what is described about rigidity with the long latency stretch reflex. But um, yeah, in a simple sense, uh, excess jerk looks like a high gain setting. <laughs> uh, you can think about, you know, instead of driving your car or driving a boat, right, you like you tend to turn too much and you get these like undamped oscillations from this. I think to a first pass, I'm, op I'm sympathetic to the idea that you might think about this excess jerk while trying to control movements to a target as being a problem during execution. And at least one way you could think of basal ganglia having these kind of aberrant settings that make it harder to control that movement via transcortical pathways. I mean, one thing that was interesting also in the Smith and Shadmir paper is this SSEC excess jerk shows up late, actually. So it shows up you know, after you initially start moving, there's not that much feedback and correction. It's kind of ballistic for a period, and then you see it. So it's after like... Uh, I think it was after 100 or 200 milliseconds into the movement is when you really started to see the XX jerk and you get all these endpoint errors in a Huntington's patient. Um, I just raised that point because it clearly seems to be something during the execution of the movement. Um, is it, there was, there is some evidence that the indirect pathway neurons are uh, affected more in Huntington's disease or first in Huntington's disease. Is that, yeah. is that still believed? I, know I, I don't know. You know, I don't. We've been interested in it. I would like to work on it. It's very hard to find a mouse model that has these like Goldilocks properties that the. Um, so in our genetic model of PD or not ours, the one built made by Matt's Ekstrand and Lars Olson, um, they sort of I don't know. It sounds a little crude, but they degenerate at just the right time. Uh, so that we can kind of train an animal on a task so we can sort of do well-controlled motor control and then they start to get bad. And they sort of start to generate around 14 weeks. So a mouse is adult around eight weeks. We can sort of put them in and train them until 14 weeks and then it gets bad. It's really hard to find a Huntington's mouse model that doesn't either degenerate immediately after birth or take like eight months to degenerate. And those, um, that, those are both... Um, unpleasant sort of factors for a postdoc <laughs> trying to do a project on it. So we've been kind of looking for it. We can like play with the repeats and stuff, but we'd like to work on it, but we really haven't found like something with kind of this nice window where it's I think ironic we can do because experiments. from a genetic point of view that Huntington's disease is yeah. ought to be much more amenable to study than Parkinson's disease, but because Huntington's disease is a simple genetic defect and it can be reproduced in mice with great ease. The and it scales in proportion to the number of repeats. Like, it feels like it should be possible, but uh -huh. there's a pretty large number. I think when I last looked on Jack's, there were something like 12 models, and they just, like, none of them were quite the right timing or of onset of severity for us to work on And they also have under different, our different weird uh, sort of off-target seeming symptoms that yeah, that, distur that are disturbing. Yeah. So one thing I don't understand, so why 
why is uh, a notion of a gain regulation and uh, some kind of action selection, why, why can't the basal ganglia do both? Like, why are they, I mean, why is it exclusive? Or, if you turn up the gain of one thing and turn down the gain of the other. Yeah, the easiest thing, you just turn on the gain of something else and then it's turned off. But whether that's true or not, but just in general, why couldn't it do both or why? Uh, is this yeah, yeah. more of a scientific perspective thing where I, it's I, a changing uh, a big ship? <laughs> right. right? I, I totally agree with you that uh, a gain of zero seems like selection, right? Uh yeah, and I think I mean, the short answer is the only reason I care about articulating this model is that it's been, one, we feel it's had a lot of explanatory power for our data that was difficult to reconcile with selection models. Um, and to some extent, it does matter. So when you say it's action selection, the computation that people tend to look for in modeling are different kinds of computations in neural circuits. Often it's winner-take-all, which is sort of some sort of mechanism of lateral inhibition so that if I, if I propose A and B, only one pattern can sort of win in its activity. Um, whereas I think you know, our proposal that it's something like gain has both generated a lot of predictions and also had a lot of explanatory power, in part because we try to implement that differently. So like one example would be there's um, there's really nice data that um, which I you can sort of describe or maybe we can just think about it introspectively like um, let's say you you're pushing on some lever in order to get some reward so you have to push it past some threshold and then something good happens I don't know beer comes out of the tap or whatever uh, and so you've had a few and then you want another one and you push and now it doesn't work um, and why doesn't it work? Uh, I don't know, but okay, so you, you're like, oh, well, I'll try pushing harder, you know, a pretty natural thing to do, and now it does work. And the question is what you would do after that. Like, what would you do the next time you went up? And selection models have led people to propose that I would try to do exactly the same action that I had done to get, uh, to get, to, to get the reward. So I'd push the lever exactly the same speed. Whereas a gain model proposes, no, just actually all of your movement, you should just in general try to push faster. Whatever it is, you don't need to replicate exactly that or select exactly that action. You just need to push harder. And that has these nice properties because it generalizes across behavior. It allows you to speed up or speed or slow down all of your you know, movements of a certain type as opposed to trying to recreate exactly a certain speed of movement. And well, that can, I stop, a, can I stop you there for a little yeah. bit? And that question of, and this may be, part of it also is what's an action in the sense of what goes together and what doesn't go together and for example action selection because it's very different seems very different to select the action of you know move at this speed versus move at that speed versus you know move my arm or kick somebody or something like that uh all of these things depend on the experimental setup of what the context of the action would be right uh, most of these are it's just the questions seem to be guided by a lot of times the it goes back to what you were talking about is how successful is it in a certain experimental context and if that's very successful uh, it's it just it's hard to come up with the right experiment to, across uh, kind of across ideas because some ideas might work well in one experimental context and 
if you apply yeah, action selection, I, right? I mean, I, maybe I could say it the other way. There's plenty of experiments you can do where those two models make no difference. There is no difference in the predictions that those two models make. But I think this is just generally true of models, right? I mean, we have to work hard to design experiments that distinguish amongst conceptualizations or models because it can often be the case that a model doesn't actually make a different prediction. I mean, that's sort of what we run into in science, right? Is that there's two people that have a different way of articulating how we might think about a problem, but the experiment doesn't distinguish them. And so we argue a lot about, you know, as a field, about whether and what experiment would distinguish them, how we would progress in distinguishing amongst them. <clears throat> so I agree that there's many experiments you can do where you could either describe it as selection or as gain, let's say. And I... I'm articulating one particular version, I think, with this sort of regulating the amplitude of movement um, that tends to be most amenable to an explanation in terms of gain, because when you try to implement some of the models that have grown out of selection arguments, they can't replicate the observed data. And the reason I care about the amplitude of movement is that that's the one thing that we always perturb when we mess with basal ganglia function in a broad variety of species. So to me, Whatever we might mean about action, we have to care about what the basal ganglia does to regulate the speed and amplitude of movements because that's the one thing that we always mess with when we mess with basal ganglia function. And so that's why I feel like we at least want to be able to explain that. But, I mean, to your point, though, it's also, I, I think I really care more about a, like a computational point, and I agree that you can use a computation like gain to achieve other things like selection. And it's really about sort of articulating, okay, in this behavior, this problem I want to describe, what sort of underlying computations could, um, could explain it? So, like, I think you could think about, if I look at my stereo and the volume knob on it, I could do an experiment where I slam the volume knob to zero or slam it to max. And so I, I can now select whether music is playing or not. But I think you would agree we misunderstand something about the volume knob. Like, we won't make as good predictions about the volume knob and how it works and what experiment we should do next if we're calling that a switch. Because, like, if it's a knob, you know, we have ideas. We go test stuff. Oh, this should be graded. This should, like, generalize. This should work for any kind of music. Things like that. We would do all those experiments. So that that's my only defense of providing some articulation of a way to look at the problem that I think. I hope, you know helps make predictions about new experiments we can do or helps us understand previously difficult to understand well, the, experimental the, data. The amplifier heuristic seems to bear out in other interesting ways as well in terms of taking the engineering approach to what do you, what do you require sort of to, to condition outputs and, and, and where you can manipulate things. And you've got some data or some ideas about the idea of, is it the convergence ideas from going from cortex to striatum to yeah. the small number of neurons in Nigra that then deliver output? Can you say something well, about I think that, that was the idea that uh, if, if this perspective is a useful one to take on, let's try to find what are the problems with the perspective that, it, you know, let's say I propose this model, what are the problems with this model? Because I feel like those are the best places for me to go do experiments and try to challenge my own conceptualization of how the model works. And it seems like, you know, I don't know how good it is to analogize or, or make the metaphor of an engineering problem, but if you want to build an amplifier, we sort of know 
we know the kinds of problems you're going to run into, which is that you can saturate amplifiers and then they're not really amplifiers anymore. I mean, that's sort of like the slamming the volume knob down and up. Um, something has to regulate that. And I guess in some respects, in that we're a little worried that cortex could, so inputs from the cortex really don't know what the kind of state of the basal ganglia is, and that seems to be a problem. And I guess one thing, the way I think about this is that um, cortex in motor control has this huge dynamic range as far as I can tell. Like, it seems to be involved in like lightly tapping my fingers together, something also perturbed in PD, the timing of tapping it, or hitting a fadeaway jump shot playing basketball. And it seems to me like, I, I don't know, it just feels to me like there must be a lot more motor cortex activated when I'm doing a whole body basketball movement coordinated than when I'm tapping my finger. But that's kind of a problem for your downstream amplifier. That's a, that's a huge dynamic range that it has to deal with. And uh, we just got really intrigued by how you would sort of deal with that kind of problem of having wildly different amounts of input. Um, so, I mean, we made, you know, I think we have some proposals and I think some data to suggest that things consistent with what might help solve this problem are present in basal ganglia. But I, I, there's a lot more work for us to do on that. I mean, I think some of those, some of those sort of resolutions to those issues are speculative. Um, but, you know, well, I, we have some data. We have more than zero data to it, but, you know, there's still a lot of open questions. But. We'll save that for the next so I'd like to bring up, a, 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 you know, some structural thing. So, uh, basal ganglia folks are focused on movement, and there's a particular part of the basal ganglia, of the striatum that receives input from motor cortex and from premotor cortex and supplementary motor cortex and the you can evoke movements by stimulating there, and you can see motion evoked responses there. And then there's a bunch of other structures that right. are part of the striatum that don't get input from motor cortex or premotor cortex or supplementary motor area, and you cannot evoke movement from them, and you generally don't see movement evoked responses from them. So what, what about those? Those are like areas that get input from association cortex and from sensory cortex and... Uh, and crazy areas of cortex, we don't even know what they do. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm just going to interpret that as an invitation to speculate a little yeah, bit. Is yeah, that yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. That's what, <laughs> That's what I was hoping for. Uh, well, this is a, what, okay, what's of great interest to me is whether, like, I, I wouldn't want our work to be interpreted as suggesting that the basal ganglia regulates the kinematics of movement but more that it seems like at least part of what it can do, to address your point, is that it can regulate the gain of descending cortical commands. In the case of something that's kind of a monotonic function, so just a line or a slope, that's really changing the slope of that function. We really liked movement because in the context of movement, we sort of know what changing the slope of those kinds of commands would look like. It should look like a change in speed or amplitude of movement based on Canonical work, not mine, obviously, from motor cortex and thinking about that. What does it look like to change the slope of other sorts of descending cortical commands that don't have anything to do with movement? I don't really know the answer, but one thing that has always been really intriguing to me is that if we sort of write down a list of the things that basal ganglia seems to be implicated in behaviorally, they often are things that we know to have monotonic, smooth representations. So they're things like the elapsed time, the value, 
motivation. There are all these things that are sort of like, kind of sound like things you could change the gain or the slope of. You can make your clock run faster or slower. You can increase or decrease the value. There are these like smooth monotonic functions that you can do the gain on. So in some other projects in the lab, we've been very interested in this from the perspective of timing. So basal ganglia always seems to be involved in sort of measuring something like elapsed time. That doesn't really manifest as overt behavior. And as you might expect, if you stimulate in the areas most involved in timing, you don't seem to exert evoked behavior. But perhaps you could think about regulating kind of the gain or the slope of elapsed time and produce timing effects, like how long you're going to wait for something. It's just a slope as a function of time going to some kind of bound. And so indeed, there's been a lot of evidence that basal ganglia in many species is involved in something like measuring elapsed time and when to react on it, the sort of integration of sensory evidence over time, all of these things that seem to be kind of monotonic elapsing functions that you could change the gain of. So we're really intrigued by that. We work a little bit on timing, and we've been able to sort of take the logic of the experiments that we did in motor control and apply what I think of as like the exact same logic, this sort of closed-loop stimulation, modifying plasticity. And what we can do is we can walk around how long a mouse is willing to wait for a reward in the predicted directions of these effects. So I, I like to think that that's consistent with the notion that it's not just in the motor domain, but in principle we can use the same logic to sort of turn into questions about other maybe more cognitive aspects or at least things that we don't measure with overt behavior, but sort of willingness to wait for something or um, or perhaps in other elements sort of the value expected value of an outcome or motivation or other things like that. So I, it's a little, I mean, we do have a project on it, so it's not totally speculative, but I had to go through the data and see if you agree that we used the same logic and got the same results. But to my opinion, that's what we were able to show there. Um, and a fascinating aspect is, of course, Parkinson's patients also can often have deficits in sort of measurement of elapsed time or um, other aspects of the regulation movement, like the slowing of speech that can be characteristic seems to be sort of comparing some internal timer of speech to um, or some some sort of alteration in the gain of this internal timer because when you play back their speech to them they don't think it's them uh, but they're producing like dramatically slowed speech so I think you get these kinds of dissociations um, which we think I would just propose perhaps it's useful for the field in addition to us to think about how gain might manifest in these things and whether it provides useful predictions about experiments people can do or ways they can think about observations in, in other contexts than the experiments we did. I don't want one more thing. So you don't want gain in uh, uh, the way that the circuit is set up. You can think of gain is, uh, in two different ways. One is that it, it, uh, the basal ganglia project to subcortical things the same way that that the cortex does, and you're kind of regulating feet forward gain, but you have these, uh, you know, cortical basal ganglia thalamic loops that go back up to cortex, and you can regulate feedback gain. And is they are they the same kind of gain? Or are they doing different kinds of things? And why would you do one way, uh, one kind of gain regulation versus another? Yeah, I. 
so I kind of came into the field not having, I, I didn't train in a basal ganglia lab. I just sort of read textbooks and papers and thought about it and decided it would be an interesting thing to work on. So I started working on it. And I could still remember there was sort of this, it's like one day where we did some labeling experiments to check. We were looking at the sort of basal ganglia output projection back to thalamus. Now, if you read many textbooks, uh, that's the only output projection of the basal ganglia as a projection back to thalamus. And I looked at the brains that we had, and like two-thirds of our output was going not to the thalamus. And so we went through some annoying checks to make sure that we hadn't messed up or missed our injection site or something, and then sort of came to discover that, no, in fact, it's true. Most basal ganglia output is actually descending down to the mesencephalon or down to the uh, brainstem rather than going back to thalamus, even though textbooks will often only draw the projection back to thalamus. Uh, and, and that had really influenced some of the work. Like, um, I, And I understand it, of course, when, when I make a model, we also skew certain projections and anatomical features we know exist. That's an important part, I think, of trying to like make a simplifying picture to help us understand. But I, I just, I literally didn't know that there was so much descending projection. And okay, so, th so then what is this sort of one-third of the output ballpark that goes up to thalamus doing? I mean, I think the other thing that if we read uh, many of our treatments in the textbook, the notion is that you activate motor thalamus and then that activates a particular pattern of activity back in cortex. But that's also been something that's been a little complicated. For example, Rob Turner and Jesse Goldberg and Michael Fee and many others have found that the story is not so nice because if you record a motor thalamus in the basal ganglia output, it's really hard to see any effect of basal ganglia output on the motor thalamus, which is a little bit of a bummer. Uh, but clearly not these like really dramatic modulations of activity that I think we maybe had in mind. And it gets worse again because, uh, in fact, this particular thalamic nucleus the basal ganglia outputs to is a so-called higher order thalamic nucleus, which we've kind of known since Jones, but um, in some of our recent work has become even more sort of apparent to us. And a characteristic feature of higher order thalamic nuclei is that they're supposed to be modulatory. They're kind of the top-down thalamic nuclei, not the kind of driver primary th thalamic nuclei that sort of pick out patterns of activity in cortex or feed sensory information forward. And so, I don't know, I would say for now, this is these are just sort of big open questions to us, but it sure looks like that feedback pathway is much more involved in sort of, well, modulation or sort of top-down control of cortical activity rather than, um, I think as we often present it in textbook pictures, a sort of driving pathway that can select patterns of cortical activity or select specific actions. Um, one articulation of that feedback pathway that I'm intrigued by uh, and this is based on, for example, Anthony Holtma and Sonia Hofer. They have really nice recent work showing that those thalamocortical neurons that go superficially like this, the modulator ones, they really seem to be largely involved in, 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 in altering plasticity of synapses, but not really driving any output from cortex. And so we're really intrigued that this is a way for cortex to kind of learn about the output of basal ganglia as opposed to be, mod, be sort of directly driven by the output of basal ganglia. I, I don't know if that's true, um, but like I said, there is some pretty direct data to this effect from Rob Turner and others that it looks 
perhaps more modulatory, or it's at least hard to provide evidence for a really strong driving input change. Not to, to stress the sort of metaphors we engage in too much, but you do kind of have this problem, which is that if you kind of learn autonomously in some sense of the basal ganglia, cortex doesn't really know what the setting of basal ganglia is. And this has always been fascinating to me because imagine, you know, imagine your basal ganglia is cranked way up to accelerate your movement. It seems like you need to know if you're going to control your movement, what your setting of basal ganglia is, because otherwise I'll try to reach for this cup and slam it over or something like that. So I like this feedback pathway being a necessary component. Somehow cortex has to know kind of the settings of basal ganglia. But there's also like Mark Humphrey's models, uh, Prescott and Redgrave's models, you know, they play, there's a really important part to sort of amplifying activity kind of around this loop. And selection for them is really this thing that's a little blurred between, I think, gain and selection, uh, where you kind of run around the loop and whoever wins, you know, over these multiple laps through the loop is the thing that's selected. Um, so, so clearly they think you have to like bring cortex into the problem. Our interpretation is that you know, I'm, I'm intrigued. I think that's a little hard to reconcile with not being a driving output back to cortex. But, um, you know, I think these are great open questions that we and others have to pursue because um, we just haven't done that much work actually on that thalamic feedback path. You know, we don't know that much about higher order motor thalamus back to cortex, although there's some, been some really nice recent work on it. That'll have to do it for us. Thank you for joining us. What a great discussion with... Josh Dudman. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks.